come now to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning, our Old Testament scripture reading is from Psalm 8, page 531 in your pew Bibles, a psalm written to the choir master according to the Giddith, or as the New King James says, um, on an instrument of Gath, Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then we'll read also from Hebrews chapter 2, where the New Testament quotes that psalm in the midst of a long defense of the supremacy of Christ or the author, going back to chapter 1, quotes from several Old Testament passages to show Christ's greatness, quotes from Psalm 2 and Psalm 18, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 104, Psalm 110. One of the things that he's doing in this, this long series of quotations is he's, he's teaching us how to read the Psalms messianically. In fact, the author of Hebrews will, will teach us how to read the whole Old Testament messianically. And in verses 5 through 9, after this, or in the midst of this long series of Psalms quotations, the author of Hebrews turns his attention to Psalm 8. He teaches us that this Psalm we just read is not just about the glory of God in creation, nor is it just about the glory of man, but it's about the glory of the God-man, Jesus, who he interprets, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as the subject and fulfillment of this psalm. So read with me Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
congregation, everything that exists, all of creation exists for the glory of God. We uh, confess with our Presbyterian friends that man's chief end is to glorify God. I could say the same thing about creation. Creation's chief end is to glorify God. That's, that's why all of creation exists. The glory of God is the reason for everything. And Psalm 8 is very much a psalm about that. It's a psalm about the glory of God. You see that in the way that it's bookended with that refrain in verse 1 and verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how glorious, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And in between those two bookends, it, it speaks of the glory of God in creation, and it speaks of the glory of God in man. The, the reason for everything is the glory of God. His purpose is to glorify himself in mankind's dominion over his vast creation. That was the point of Genesis chapter 1. That God would glorify himself through the dominion that he would exercise through his image bearers and vice regents in his kingdom who would have dominion over this vast earth and spread his glory throughout it. And yet, because we've read past Genesis 1, we know that that doesn't happen. We know about sin's entrance into the world by virtue of which we do not perfectly exercise the dominion that we were meant to. We do not perfectly glorify God the way that we ought. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says that the creation was subjected to futility. Mankind does not perfectly exercise dominion and fails in glorifying God. Creation's vision for humanity is not realized because of sin. And yet, as we read Psalm 8, it looks forward to a day when that vision will be realized, and all things will be put under a man's feet. And that man, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is Christ, the one through whom the glory of God is made known in all the earth. And so that's what we see this morning in Psalm 8, how God's intended purpose of glorifying himself through mankind's dominion over his vast creation is realized in Christ. We consider first the glory of God in creation, and then the glory of God in man, and finally the glory of God in Jesus. Look with me first at the glory of God in creation. Again, verse 1 And verse 9, envelop this whole psalm with resounding notes of praise to God's majesty. And one of the main reasons for this praise of God's majesty is his glory in creation. You see that in verse 1, how he has set his glory above the heavens. And not only has he set his glory above the heavens, but it also says that his name is majestic on the earth. Both in heaven and on earth, in all of creation, God's glory and God's majesty are made known. That's what we sang in Psalm 19. The heavens above declare the glory of our God. And what his hands have made, the skies proclaim abroad. Romans chapter 1, Paul says God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Both the psalmist in Psalm 19 and the apostle in Romans 1 are making the point that God's glory is made known in creation. You see that in verse 3 of our psalm. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And David goes on to say that as he considers these things, it it makes him feel small. And these glorious heavenly bodies that make the king feel small, he says, are merely the work of God's fingers. Reminds you almost a little bit of, of Genesis chapter 1 where, God, where, where um, Moses comments in verse 16 on how God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and then almost as a, as a sort of, of throw-in, he says, oh, and also the stars made with, with God's fingers like divine finger painting, this one and that one. These stars are just a few among millions. This galaxy is is one among millions. David is making the point that these beautiful stars, this beautiful moon that's enough to make our jaws drop, that they are one of many. And God has set them in place, that he is the master artist behind them. Notice the possessive pronouns that he uses, your heavens, the work of your fingers, which you have set in place. David understands that the glorious heavenly bodies he beholds in the Middle Eastern night sky or the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset are meant to move him to praise, as they're meant to move us to praise. Not just the sun, moon, and stars, but verses 6 through 8 then direct us also to God's glory that is revealed in the animal kingdom. You might remember a few months ago when we, when we finished looking at the book of Job. This is a lot like Job 38 and 39, where after directing Job to the constellations in the sky, God then points to the animals. It says, Job, consider the wild donkey and how he runs free. Or look at the wild ox and his great strength, or the ostrich and his size and and his speed, or the war horse who laughs at fear and does not turn back from the sword. Look at these animals in creation and see my glory. Psalm 8's tour of creation does something very much like that. And just as in Job, it's meant to move us to praise. As we consider the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, to say, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How great and how glorious and powerful and creative and beautiful you are. That's what a visit to the zoo or... Uh, the aquarium or, or bird kingdom or an evening watching the animal planet or, or a trip to the planetarium or a morning watching the sunrise or an evening watching the sunset. That's what those things are meant to do. They're meant to move us to praise for the one who made those things with his fingers, who spoke them into being. Psalm 8 is an inspired devotional commentary on Genesis chapter 1. And its main application is to praise. Boys and girls, when you look at the beauty of the stars or the vastness 
of creation, the, the vastness of the ocean, or when you look at the strength or speed of your favorite animal, it's meant to make you say, how great is our God? Moms and dads, one of our jobs is to help our children to do that, to see creation and to praise God for. In fact, that's, that's one of the reasons why we believe in a robustly Christian education, so that we can help them to see in all the different aspects of creation, all the different aspects of, of nature and, and everything under God's creation, that our children would be made to, to move from that to doxology. See, how great is our God who made these things. Our job is to help them see creation and praise God for it. Not to praise the ones um, self-congratulatingly who who have achieved some level of dominion over it, uh, thinking that we're so great because of the things that we can learn about creation or because of the animals that we can capture and have dominion over, or because of the lunar missions that we as mankind can make. But the point is that doing those things should lead us to see the glory and power of God. Our response to the vastness of creation is to glorify its creator, not to glorify ourselves, as is often the case. Look at these achievements of man but to see the majesty of God. Maybe you've had the experience before of visiting a a space museum or something like that, and you hear a lot about the greatness of man in in achieving this travel into space, but, but remarkably little about the God who made it. Psalm 8 is telling us, if that's the case, then we're getting it backwards. But beholding the sun... The moon and the stars should lead us not to say how great we are, but to say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And yet even though the glory of man is not the goal of creation, it is true that God reveals his glory through man or or in man. And so that's the second thing that we want to consider this morning, the glory of God not just in creation, but also in the crown of his creation and those who distinctly bear his image. We see the glory of God in man in verse 2, where God establishes strength through him. We see it in verse 4, where against the backdrop of the sun, moon, and stars, God sets his affection on man. He is mindful of him and reveals not only his kindness in caring for man, but also reveals something of the special dignity of these creatures who he makes the special objects of his care. Calvin says he bears toward man a fatherly love, defends and cherishes him, and extends his providence toward him. And the purpose of this is not to boost our self-esteem. H.B. Charles says it's it's to boost our God-esteem. And yet, nevertheless, um, the way that God sets his special affection on man does say something about the glory of God in man. We bear his image. He crowns us with glory and honor and gives to man dominion over the works of his hands. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and fish of the sea, God gives to man dominion. 
which as we learn all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, is to be an extension of God's dominion. Whereas a sort of vice regent, he bestows on man the mediation of his own rule and power. Which again is, is very important for us to remember. The, the, the authority that God gives us in whatever realm or whatever sphere is not to further our own kingdom, but is entrusted to us to further his. Woe to us if we seek to usurp God's glory for ourselves or use the power that he has given us to abuse the weak. That's sometimes how authority has been used in the history of the world or even the church or the home. But God says that's a misuse of it. He bestows upon man his glory and his dominion and he calls him to rule over all things in his name. And to put all things under subjection, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and even, verse 8, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, which the the Jewish Targum, an ancient commentary on the scriptures, um, suggested includes even Leviathan, that serpentine symbol in the Old Testament of the forces of evil which fits with what we saw already in verse 2, that there are enemies who need to be squashed, the enemy and avenger who man is tasked with stilling. G.K. Beale says God tasks Adam with decisively defeating the evil forces on the perimeter of the garden. He was to still or, or remove or bring to an end the enemy and avenger, even that serpentine sea creature that passes along the paths of the seas. That symbol of Satan in the Old Testament, we, we consider, we look at the book of Job, Leviathan. Adam was supposed to crush the serpent. That was part of the dominion that he was supposed to exercise, removing that singular enemy and avenger in verse 2. But of course, Adam failed. Genesis chapter 3, Adam did not crush the serpent. And so now man does not have dominion over all things. He doesn't perfectly enjoy that, that perfect peace with the animal kingdom. And though God's glory is still revealed in him, it is not perfectly so, but the image of God, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, is corrupted. It is marred by the fall. And so a man is, is given this task of exercising the perfect dominion of God over his creation, of, of exercising the rule of God in the midst of his world so that all things be put under his feet to the glory of God, but fails. The first Adam did not do as mankind was meant to do. And because in Adam's fall we sinned all and are corrupted with his sin nature, now Genesis 1 and Psalm 8's vision for the glory of God in mankind's dominion over creation is not realized. That dominion of of verse 6 and and the glory of God being spread through his image bearers to the uttermost ends of the earth as Adam was meant to do does not happen. Which is why we need the gospel. That's why we need that first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15 where God promises to save his people through his son who will be born of a woman taking on the likeness of Adam to do what Adam was supposed to do and crush the serpent. 
having dominion by exercising God's rule and God's reign in the kingdom that he would establish. I want to consider the rest of of the time that we have the glory of God in Jesus, the second and last Adam who would do what the first Adam failed to do and fulfill God's promise of a son of the woman crushing the head of the serpent and putting all things under his feet. Already in verse 2, we see hints that God is going to do this. That what the first Adam failed to do in not removing the enemy and avenger, God will do in establishing strength through an infant. That term, to establish strength, has the idea of of gaining the victory or of appointing power in the context of this psalm over against God's foes. Even his singular foe, that enemy and avenger. And the one through whom God will do this, verse 2, is a baby. Do you hear that Genesis 3.15 allusion that God will gain the victory over his enemies, even that singular enemy, through a child, through a baby, through the successive generations leading from from Adam all the way to, to the birth of Jesus Christ. James Hamilton puts it this way. He says, verse 2 is a poetic way of saying that God's answer to Satan's rebellion is the assertion that the woman would have a child, that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the woman's seed would bruise the serpent's head. God answers the dragon's roar with a baby's cry, with the birth of a child with the weak things of this world so that he might get the glory. He conquers the dragon. He conquers Leviathan through the weak means of the humiliation of his son. Through his incarnation, born as that babe of verse 2 and crucifixion, where he stills the enemy and avenger through the weakest means possible, his death on a cross. Christ is that son of man in verse 4. That's a a term elsewhere in the Psalms that speaks not just generally of mankind, but as we heard in Psalm 80, of human kings, of, of God's anointed king. The one for whom God cares, verse 4, and though he made him for a little while lower than the angels, crowns him with glory and honor. Did you notice um, how the New Testament translated that, verse 5. As we, we read it in our versions, it says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but, but Hebrews chapter 2, following the Septuagint, says not, you have made him a little lower than the angels, but it said you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. The son of man who is that child born of the woman, is made throughout his sojourn on earth to be lower than the angels, taking on human weakness for a time so that he might then exalt that human weakness with glory and honor in his resurrection and ascension. Where verse 6, all things will be put under his feet. Where verse 5, his crown of thorns will be exchanged for a crown of glory. In verse 9, his name will be great in all the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. 
This psalm takes us from creation and mankind's failure to do as God intended for him to do to God's answer to that with, with, with the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent to the fulfillment of that promise and the son of man being made lower than the angels for a little while then stealing the enemy and avenger through the weakness of his heel being bruised on the cross. And then God lifting him up with glory and honor to be given all things. Until 1 Corinthians 15, all things will be placed under his feet. Ephesians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 both quote this psalm when they, they say that God raised Jesus up from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, not only in this age, but the age to come and put all things under his feet. Psalm 8 takes us from creation to new creation, where God's name will be great not only in this earth, but the new earth. Is that not what Hebrews chapter 2 says? It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking, the author of Hebrews said. And then quotes from Psalm 8. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, and then he takes us to Psalm 8. That's why Andrew Bonar said, Psalm 8 is the Genesis 1 of the new creation, where the last Adam fills the earth with God's glory and achieves God's intended purpose for humanity, placing all things under his feet, even the animal kingdom, which Isaiah chapter 11 says we'll enjoy perfect peace with in the age to come. In fact, that's even pictured in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus, the second Adam, is is said to be out in the wilderness with the wild animals, demonstrating the kind of dominion that Adam was meant to have and that we one day will have in the new heavens and new earth where the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion together and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child put his hand in the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of his glory as the waters fill the sea. That's the prophetic vision of Isaiah chapter 11 of the new heavens and new earth, and and that's what Psalm 8 prophesies. The second Adam, the true man ruling over the world to come at peace with the animal kingdom and God's name and God's glory filling the earth. Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Jesus fulfills the intended purpose of humanity. And our response as we read Psalm 8 Christianly is to join the chorus of verse 1 and verse 9 and say in response to all that God has done in Christ, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is the name of Christ in all the earth, the one who's been given dominion and power and rule and authority. As we heard from Revelation 5, who has set his glory above the heavens, defeated our great enemy, it is worthy of our praise. Psalm 8 is a summons to worship and glorify God, not just for his glory in creation, not just for his glory in man, the crown of his creation, but for his glory in the God-man Jesus 
It was made for a little while lower than the angels to taste death for everyone and conquer our great foe and then be crowned with glory and honor. The author of Hebrews is is using Psalm 8 to stir us to see Jesus and worship him. To see the majestic name of God revealed in his son, who, as one pastor said, is the center of Psalm 8's description of God's majesty. Jesus Christ is the center of Psalm 8's description of God's majesty, according to the book of Hebrews. Do you see him? Do you see this morning in Psalm chapter 8, the glory and majesty of God revealed in the person and work of his son? Do you see Jesus? Do you know him? Psalm 8 is summoning us to see and know Jesus by faith. And though at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to look to Jesus and and the glory that this psalm says he'll one day bring and trust him. To trust him in the trials of this life, knowing that he has already overcome our great enemy and avenger and his majestic name will be great in all the earth and the world to come. Psalm 8 summons us to see Jesus and worship. It summons us to see God's glory in creation and redemption. It summons us in this time when all things are not yet in subjection to him, and we know the trials of Psalms 3 through Psalm 7, or the trials that will continue in Psalms 9 and 10, to trust him. And to sing this psalm, this Genesis 1 of the new creation with the eyes of faith, looking to that day when the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth. And until then, also to participate with him in the furtherance of that glory. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, because we are united by the Holy Spirit to the one who is seated already in the heavens, we reign with him. And we are being made, little by little, more and more into his likeness, conformed to the image of that new creation man, the second Adam, as the new creation invades this present age through him. And he allows us to take part in putting all things under his feet, employing, once again, weak creatures to silence his foe, as through the work that we do. The, the dominion that we exercise in the realms that he has entrusted to us. Especially in the context of this psalm, the worship that we give, even the worship of our children, through those things, we spread his glory throughout the earth and still the enemy and the avenger. God continues to use weak means to still the enemy and crush him under our feet. Restoring us in Christ to that original purpose for which we were made, the reason for everything, to spread God's glory throughout creation, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, whom you have given dominion, over all things, 
who when mankind failed and failed miserably in our task, you promised that a child would be born to still the enemy and avenger through weakness, to be made for a little while lower than the angels and then have his heel bruised in his death on a cross to crush our great foe and to restore us to the purpose for which we were made as in his ascension man is lifted up to that place of dominion and we even reign with him. So that our work as those united to the new man is given meaning. The work that we do, the children that we raise, the songs that we teach them to sing as they gather with us and worship, as we worship with them in our homes, all of that is used by you, these weak means to still the enemy and avenger, to crush him, Romans 16, under our feet. And so we pray that you would help us in our tasks. Moms and dads, as we teach our children about the glory of creation and teach them to praise you so that through their lisping worship, the enemy might be brought to his knees. I would encourage moms and dads in their tasks, even in the pews as they teach their children to worship. Encourage them by Psalm 8 with the knowledge that this is part of your plan for the expansion of your kingdom and the defeat of our great enemy. Lord, we pray that Christ's name would be glorified in all the earth, that the prophetic vision that is cast in this psalm would be fulfilled and all things would be placed under Christ's feet. We pray in Jesus' name.